Take the boots. I am so thrilled to be here. I really am. I have looked around this room, and there are so many dear friends from Hume, from our church. We've got a whole bunch of people from our church, and I'm really excited about that. There are people that I've heard about for years I haven't met yet, but I'm looking forward to, and some, some, this is just a delightful time. And I just want to say up front, I am an artist wannabe. I can remember in kindergarten, first grade, seeing kids draw. They would draw these gory battle scenes. You ever remember those kids? And uh, then they would draw uh, horses and cars and just mountain scenes. And I thought, I want to do that. And I, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, I had a rough childhood, a rough home life. And I didn't realize this connection, but I'm sure something in me longed for the therapeutic effect that I'm sure was going on there, that you get to go somewhere else when you dive into creativity and art. And, and I often wanted to go somewhere else when I was a kid, and it looked so appealing to me, so I would try it. And I would draw the best horse I possibly could. <laughs> and it was virtually unrecognizable. I mean, the things people speculated it probably was, was quite disconcerting to me. And so I am here as an artist wannabe. It's, it's, my whole life has been a divinely orchestrated comedy, and one of the comedic scenes is me speaking to artists, trying to help you do anything. But here's the thing. I have, I have no pretenses of being an artist, so let's just get that on the table. I have nothing to prove. That's refreshing, isn't it? Most artists feel... Typically, like they have something to prove, especially in the church, because very often you're underappreciated, I think. And so, so I have nothing to prove artistically. I got no horse in this race trying to prove myself as an artist. Isn't that refreshing? So I'm sort of the odd man out here, and I'm excited about that role. But I am a theologian. That's what I do. I think about God, and I think about the things of God. And so... I teach at a liberal arts university, and so we have all the majors, including ones that are very creative and artistic, and so I'm constantly thinking, as any, any good theologian should, how can I help my nursing students, my film students, my, my visual artist students, my musician students that are majoring in the creative arts, as well as lots of other things, my history students, how can I help them apply Christian doctrine to their discipline? And I'm constantly thinking about my students who are creative and artistic and helping them do that to the glory of God. And so I really am thrilled to be here. I don't have any great ideas for you. I've just got some basic ideas that I thought might be helpful for you to ponder, for us to ponder as you think about being artists and being creative and applying that to whatever it is you do. One of the things I love about this group, and even folks from our church who are here, is how differently gifted they are. We have people who love to write here, and people who love to make beautiful things and don't even know how to categorize themselves as artists, right, Allie? And, and, and we've, got, we've got painters, you've told me this, yes, I'm not calling you out, you told me that. So... I, uh, she's, she's not sure how to categorize herself. She just knows she oozes creativity, right? And does it on a low budget at our church. It's wonderful. And I'm so thankful for, we've got painters and, and people who are so 
creative in different ways. And it's so wonderful to know that we can do this all to the glory of God. I actually want to begin by just reading a very familiar passage from Genesis chapter 1. Here's what it says. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. And every tree with its seed and fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird in the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is called the creation mandate, among other things in here, as we're made in God's image. He's the creator. And then he makes us fellow creators, pro-creators, alongside creators with God. Now, the focus here, especially after what happens in Genesis 3, is bearing children, because we know from the seed of the woman, the Messiah will come, and he will crush the head of the serpent that causes the problem just a couple chapters later. And so the focus is there, but it's certainly not limited to that. The, the command to be fruitful and multiply and rule over and subdue means we bring our image of God personhood to bear on creation in a way that makes a difference, that makes a mark. And that can look myriad different ways, but it's a beautiful calling. A lot of people know that the Reformation was about justification by faith alone, but not enough people know that just as much the Reformation was about something called the Protestant work ethic. And the Protestant work ethic was this idea, as Luther said, that the milkmaid is doing the work of the Lord. Now, we don't have milkmaids anymore. Just go down the, road, down the hill and you'll see it's all machine and computerized now. But you get what he's saying, right? That someone who milks cows for a living is doing that to the glory of God. And so we mow a lawn to the glory of God. To the point where Paul summarizes it this way. Whatever you do, whether eating or drinking, do it all to the glory of God. Which means when it's not sin, God tells us that he gave us everything for us to enjoy and it has the capacity to glorify him. And so that's most certainly true when we act like the God we are intended to image with using our creativity. He's the creator. And we join with him in the creative process after he makes everything for his glory and for our joy. And we get to create alongside him. It's a beautiful calling we have as Christians. And so here, here's one of the things I want us to think about. Just, just a basic theological truth. That I want your help in applying to creativity and art. I really do. I, I'm going to open it up later. So as, we're, as I'm talking, I would love for you to be thinking to help me as a theologian help my creative students, you included, with what it means to 
understand this doctrine. And, it, and it's called the incomprehensibility and knowability of God. The, the title for what I wanted to talk about tonight, I sort of stole from, uh, it's, this is a paraphrase of a book on Russian, Russian literature. Uh, a book just came out in Russian literature called When Mystery Confronts Certainty. The, the, this expert in Russian literature thinks that that's what Russian literature does. We come with all our preconceptions and our ideas, and then especially suffering hits us in a fallen world, and it blows our certainty away very often with mystery. Well, I didn't want to talk about um, certainty confronting wonder or mystery, but I, I want to talk about the meeting, because I think that's so much what an artist helps us with, is dealing with this relationship between wonder and certainty. And I'm just going to tell you where I'm heading. I think artists have an incredibly important role to play in helping us, helping humanity, helping the church in particular, appreciate wonder more and appreciate mystery more, but grounded in truth. And that flows right from God himself who is both incomprehensible and knowable. And so I want to start by singing a hymn. I, I'm not trying to, believe me, I'm not trying to upstage Mikey and Sue's here at all. But, but I wanted to sing a hymn that I think really helps us think about the wonder of God. Those are beautiful songs we started with. Who knows the hymn Immortal Invisible? Oh, about a third of you. Well, you'll all know it in a few minutes. I... It goes, immortal, invisible, God only wise, enlightened, accessible, hid from our eyes. Now you know it. Oh, that's an authorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious. Thy great name we praise. Yeah? Let's stand and sing it together. <laughs> that, I wasn't singing it just now. I was just helping, <laughs> helping with the tune. Here we go. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, enlightened, accessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light, nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains high soaring above, thy clouds which are fountains of goodness and love. To all life thou givest, to both great and small. In all life thou livest, the true life of all. We blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree, and wither and perish, but not changeth thee. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, Thine angels adore Thee, all veiling their sight. All praise we would render, O help us to see. 
Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. Beautiful. Thank you. Ah, oh, that was so good. Good for my soul. If we did nothing else, that would be great. Move that. Thank you, dear. Jeff, would you grab that mic now? I would just love to get some feedback right now. What, what, did anything stand out to you as we went through that? Anything of particular importance? Anything really impress you as you went through it? It's Tony. Tony. Tony and Chris. Yes. Christy. What did you see, Christy? I think it's amazing the idea that it's his brightness that hides him from us. Usually, yes, usually things are hidden because of darkness. Yes, right, right. Right, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee, right? That's the line you were talking about right at the end there, yeah. So with God, the inaccessibility doesn't come through darkness. It comes through an, an effulgence of light, right, an, an excessive revelation. Yeah, beautiful, good. Anything else jump out at you? Mine's another light one. I wrote it down as we sang, and so I missed it first. Beautiful. Good for <laughs> I wrote, you. as silent as light. Yes. That's powerful. I don't even want to say more. Just think about it. <laughs> yeah, it's silent as light. Yeah. I guess fluorescent lighting isn't silent. but <laughs> Just some of the repeated... Um, phrase like nor wanting nor wasting and just the rhythms that it kept it was very poetic yes um and like there was like most most on the next one i think but just the rhythms and comparisons right so and i love that line because it's such a contrast to us we're very wanting and very wasting and that doesn't mean god recycles that means he, he's not subject to the second law of thermodynamics. He's, he's not losing anything ever. And we always are. We're always wasting away in this fallen and cursed world. And he never is. These, these expressions where God is radically different than we are are really important for us to meditate on. Good. What else? Anything else jump out at you? Yeah. The fact that he's unresting and un unhasting, they Is seem contradictory. Yes, yes. He doesn't need, God never slumbers nor sleeps. First of all, let's ponder that. One of the main ways we show our frailty is in our desperate need for sleep. Isn't it amazing? If I go without sleep for more than 16 hours, the fruit of the Spirit goes on vacation, right? <laughs> and, 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 I, and I become a different person, right? We're so frail, and God never slumbers or sleeps. <gasps> That's an awesome God, yeah. Good. Anything else? That, oh, oh, and so he's unresting, but he's unhasting. He's not running around frantic like we so often do. Right? He's, he's not running behind schedule ever. That's right. It's outside of time, but he's in it too, working with us time-bound creatures so patiently. Yeah. No thought. Thanks, Jeff. One more. Yes. Tim. Tim. Man, are you looking artistic. Tim. Tim is a craftsman. Tim makes beautiful things. Sometimes he fixes 
sewer systems as well. But <laughs> when he's doing his thing, man, and loving it, he's making beautiful, beautiful handcrafted art. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, I was just going to say, of all the hymns that you picked tonight here, we, uh, we, that was a hymn we had at our wedding. And Dina just said to me, why did you pick that? But, and I picked it because the words were so, as Emily was talking about, words have so much meaning. Yeah. There's so much meaning out of that one hymn. It's right. just amazing. Yeah, it's about as packed as it can be. Now, I know it's really fashionable among thinking Christians to bash repetitive worship music. And I don't do that because some of the psalms can get pretty repetitive, right? And we need repetition. So I'm not bashing it, but there is a time and a place to sing a hymn that you can't keep up with, right? I've had 27 jobs in my life. I want to have about, there are about that many I still want to have, but I'm not going to make it. I know, and I'm I'm almost 60. I'm not going to make it. But one of the jobs I would love to have, have you ever been to a ski resort before the lifts even start and maybe before the sun has even fully come up after a full night of snow? And you'll hear, do you know what that is? There's a guy and his job is to shoot a cannon into snowfields and launch avalanches. Can you, can you think of a better job than that? I mean, I, I would love, I'm sure he does everything. I don't care if I had to clean toilets the rest of the day. If that's how I got to start the day, I'm good. I'm good. Right? So, so. So avalanches are amazing things. I, you, you got a glimpse of this avalanche I have a picture of. Have any of you ever been caught in an avalanche? No, you haven't. Because, because, have you been caught in an avalanche? Exactly. Yeah, you get my point. Yeah. Yeah, you don't run from an avalanche. You, it's like kind of the grizzly bear thing. Just give up, right? It, it's just... Because there's a time for worship and contemplation and conversation and teaching about God that makes you feel like you're in a theological avalanche. And that's what I, I, I long for more of among the people of God. And I don't think there's anybody who can help us with the mystery and the wonder and the avalanche of who God is better than artists. I live in the world of propositions as a theologian, of, of words expressed as factual statements. And there is a massive place for that. That's so important as an anchor in our lives. But we desperately need to unleash artists in the world, taking truth, but helping us understand the magnitude of it. And so what I thought would be good for just a few minutes to think about is this tension between the incomprehensibility and knowability of God. When we say God is incomprehensible, it never means we believe things that are irrational or illogical or unfounded, but it does mean we believe things that are incredibly mysterious, incredibly beyond our ability to fully comprehend and understand. 
ever to fully wrap our minds around. And so incomprehensibility just means God will never be fully known or exhaustively understood by us. He tells us his ways and thoughts are higher than ours. He says, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. And this one's really cool. What do you want more than to be known? Not much. Really known. What is more upsetting than to be misunderstood or mischaracterized? We want to be known. And this is telling us, speaking of God's knowledge of us, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So, so David is saying God's knowledge of me is so beyond my knowledge of myself, it blows my mind up. Is that real? I just love that. God knows you so much better than you know yourself that it should make your head explode. And you're the world's leading expert on you. And God's knowledge of you so far surpasses your knowledge of yourself, it, it, it makes your head explode, right? That, that's what he's saying. Look, look at what it says in Job. Speaking of God's work in creation, these are the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? And of course, Romans, oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Rhetorical questions, correct? Yes? No one, obviously. Uh, yes, okay. When you read the Bible and people gain new understanding of God, like Job does in the book of Job. My son was just reading the book of Job. Praise the Lord. My son, my 18-year-old son was reading Job. Oh, I can die now. Uh, but... <laughs> Um, and he's texting my wife and me verses from Job that he's, he's coming across. And, and we had a great conversation about Job. But Job starts off, you remember. How does he start off? Nobody's getting it done more than Job, right? There wasn't a more righteous man in the land. He knows God really well. But through his trial, through the theologizing he and his friends do how do you figure god lets them run their mouths for 37 chapters before he finally says excuse me gird up your loins like a man i've got something to say and he does and he blows him away with his work in creation and job starts off in a really good place with god better than anybody else around but look at all the room he had to grow after his trial look what he says I know you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then listen to this beautiful imagery. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He says, my previous knowledge, which was impressive on a human level, he says, was just like hearing knowledge. Now I have seeing knowledge. It's a whole new place. And what you need to realize is as Job's understanding of God skyrockets here, what else skyrockets? His understanding of how little he actually knows. And that's the paradoxical nature of knowledge of God. The more you actually know, the more you realize 
you don't know. Now, that's true of biology. That's true of everything. That's why we call sophomores sophomores. Wise fools. That's what that means from the word we get wisdom from and the word we get moron from. Seriously, it's wise fools are what we call sophomores. Why? Because they took all these intro classes as freshmen and they think they know a lot now. And then they take biology 201 and they realize they don't know anything. And, And so we need to get to the point where we have sufficient knowledge to know how little we actually know. In any time in the Bible, someone's knowledge of God increases, so does their knowledge of his incomprehensibility. And that's this paradoxical nature of knowledge of God. There's a similar paradox in the more satisfied you are in God, the more you hunger for God. And so, so those two go hand in hand. But God's incomprehensible. And it's not hard to say why. The first and obvious reason I would think is he's infinite. He's without qualitative limitation. Anything that's true of God is true without limit. Anything that's true of him. That doesn't mean that everything's true of him. It means what is true of him is true without limit. And we, by nature, as being created things, are limited in every way and everything about us. And that's not a sinful thing in itself. That's a human thing. And that's a very good thing, God says. We can beat ourselves up for being finite. I say this phrase so much in my classes at Biola. Students made a bumper sticker of it. And it's this. Embrace your finitude. Embrace your finitude. Love being finite. That's how God made you. Love being limited. You're not God. You'll never be omni-anything. And God's omni-everything. And so he's infinite, we're finite. Two, the perfect unity of his attributes. Uh, and and this, this is an awesome thing about God. I'll just do this really quickly. I spent a whole class session on this at Biola. We're going to do it in four minutes. Go. Um, we'll use brown. Um, we don't ever... Oh, no, we won't. Well, there's a black one on the floor. Oh, you put it over there. I wanted it there, Donna. No, I didn't want it there. Um, we don't ever want to think of God's attributes. That's not a bunny. It's on its way to being a flower. See what a good artist I am. Um, we never want to think of God's attributes like this. Grace, love, uh, wisdom, power, uh, presence. Useless to write, isn't it? You can't even read it. So, but you get you get my point, right? Um, uh, wrath, justice, and so on. You don't think of them independently like this. How terrible would it be if God's attributes worked inter- independently from each other? Um, he'd be like I am, because he would want to love. I genuinely want to love so often. But I lack the wisdom to know how to do it. And so I love, but I love stupidly. I do. I love stupidly a lot. Ask my kids. Ask my wife. I, I, sometimes in an effort to love, I make it worse. God never does that. Imagine if he had love and wisdom, but not the power to accomplish what he knew would be helpful in his wisdom in his effort to love us. 
He doesn't lack the power to accomplish that. Imagine if he had love, wisdom, power, but not presence. That'd be useless. I'll get, I'll get to you next week. He never has to do that. Rather, we need to think about all his attributes perfectly intersecting with all his other attributes. It's called the unity of his attributes. It's one of the most glorious things about God. That he never lacks anything he needs to be everything he is and everything we need him to be for us. And so as all his attributes are perfectly functioning, so he never shuts off his grace valve so he can open up his justice valve. They always work perfectly interdependently. It's a glorious thing about God. And why do I add this to the list of incomprehensibilities? Because think about this. Right now, right now, God is everywhere present with his whole being. Right now. And fully knowledgeable of everything that is happening. Every thought and intent of every human heart, every activity, every action. He's fully present. And he's got all his attributes working perfectly. And then add to this that he's not bound by time, as our brother said. He's able to experience past, present, and future as one simple eternal act. And so he's not limited in any way in his inability to experience everything. And right, that means right now, let's just look at what's happening on this earth right now. Right now, he's experiencing every divorce and every marriage. Every baby being born and every baby being aborted. Every murder and every first responder saving a life. Right now, he's, he's experiencing every reconciliation in every broken relationship. Right now, he's experiencing all those things at the very same time, fully present in all those ways, responding exactly the way a perfect God would respond in all those things. Yeah. That's incredible. And so you just add his, the unity of his attributes to our finitude and his infinity, and it, it makes your brain blow up. And so... We also have to add the effects of sin on our minds. That's what noetica means, just of the mind. The Bible says we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So not only are we, we finite and he's infinite, not only are his attributes unified in a mind-blowing way, but, but in a fallen world, we suppress the truth, we twist it, we distort it, which makes him even further away from our ability to fully understand. And finally, in this is wonderful. He keeps secrets. Isn't that great? He says the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever so we may walk in his ways. God keeps secrets. Is that okay with you? Americans don't like that. <laughs> send, send the reporters over. Stick microphones. You mean nobody got a video of it? Oh. We think we have a right to know everything. And, and we actually equate love in full disclosure which is wrong. Good parents do not tell their children everything they may want to know at certain periods of their life, right? Maybe ever. And so, so we've got to trust God's wisdom in this. Now, in heaven, this will be gone, but the others will remain. We now see through a glass darkly, but then we will see his face to face. And so our knowledge of him will skyrocket, no longer affected by the effects of sin on our minds and our ability to understand him. But the others will stay active. I think he'll even keep some secrets, maybe just for fun, just to mess with us and our ideas of what true love is. But, 
we've got to understand the incomprehensibility of God and then work out the implications of this. The first of which I hope is really obvious, humility. One of the craziest things in the world is that when people learn, what does the Bible say knowledge does? Puffs up. This is a biblically literate audience, yes. Uh, it puffs up. It makes us arrogant. How crazy. Especially if knowledge of God makes us arrogant. That's flat-out insanity. And so humility has got to be the first implication of this. We, we don't be filled with pride thinking we know everything about there, there is to know about God. That we have answers to every question. The incomprehensibility of God should humble us greatly and fill us with awe and reverence and fear in the presence of such a great God. And second, wonder. And this is, this is why I want you artists and creative people to think about how helpful you can be to us. Creativity and artistic expression, whatever it is, makes our mouths drop open. It, it, it makes us realize the world's bigger than we thought it was. That God who made it is bigger than we realized. It can take us down a Job-like path and say, I spoke of things too wonderful for me to know. And I don't, I don't need to tell this group this like I do most groups. We need to cultivate hearts of wonder. You all have so much to teach me on that, which is why I love that I get to be here. But, but we've got to cultivate hearts. We live in a cynical age. We live in an apathetic age where it's actually cool to be uninterested. And that's a sin. You know, my, you'll think I'm a horrible father, but... I think boredom is a sin. I guess depending on how you define boredom, but my, when my kids were little, they'd come and say, Daddy, I'm bored. And I'd say, well, then repent. <laughs> because if you're bored, the problem's not with the world. It's with you. You're not seeing the wonder of the world, obviously. Shakespeare said, if we had nothing but a rose, we would need no other proof for God's existence. If you're bored, that's a real problem. You're not seeing what's obviously there. And so, so cultivate hearts of wonder. We'll never cease to be in awe of God. And I believe this is true for all of eternity. We'll never have full knowledge of God. I think we're going to sit down, and, and Tony and I are going to sit down, and I'm going to say, Tony, listen to what I learned about God today. And she's going to say, Eric, that's nothing. And it won't be competitive. But she'll just say, that's nothing. Listen to what I learned. And we're going to worship with this never-ending discovery that's going to go on for all of eternity. I think that's going to be at the heart of what's so worshipful about heaven. And listen to, listen to what one writer says about C.S. Lewis. I love this. In most children, but in relatively few adults, at least in our time, we may see a willingness to be delighted to the point of self-abandonment. This free and full gift of oneself to a story is what produces the state of enchantment. But why do we lose this desire? Or if not the desire, the, the ability to give ourselves to the story in this way. He says, adolescence in, introduces the fear of being deceived. The fear of being caught believing what others have ceased believing in. You ever hear, oh, you Christians are on the wrong side of history. We're not, but we're often on the wrong side of the opinion polls. 
and will be considered backwards. But Lewis is saying here, oh, if people are ceasing to believe this story, it doesn't mean the story's not true. And he says, um, but they don't want to be caught believing what others have ceased believing in. They don't want to be naive, to be gullible. He calls them humiliations of adolescence. And this author says, Lewis never seemed to have possessed this fear. One could say that Lewis remained, in this particular sense, childlike. That is, always able to receive pleasure from the kinds of stories that tend to give pleasure to children. Surely Lewis himself would have said that when we can no longer be wide open to glory, risking whatever immaturity thereby, we've not lost just our childlikeness, but something near the core of our humanity. Those who will never be fooled can never be delighted, because without self-forgetfulness, there can be no delight. And this is a great and grievous loss. And so, to be filled with wonder, you know, we have this idea that learning and maturity means less and less childlikeness or less wonder. That's not how the Bible in Jesus portrays maturity and knowledge. Knowledge acquisition, when it's right, should lead to a greater childlikeness and being open to wonder and glory and mystery and giving ourselves to the great story of redemption. And so we, we are filled with wonder, and we cultivate hearts of wonder. I have to tell my students, because they do. So many, especially the guys, seem to think, like, apathy's cool. And, and I want to just disabuse them of that idea at all. And I say, do whatever it takes. If you've got a bunch of cynical friends, get rid of those friends, consider the ministry opportunities, and get new friends who will help you be filled with wonder. Buy a kitten. Do whatever it takes. <laughs> To be filled with wonder. I do. I tell them that. And, and don't let yourself go down this road of cynicism and negativity and apathy because it'll kill you and it'll squelch any joy that God has for you in your heart. But, and finally, this one may be counterintuitive to you. We can believe things because of God's incomprehensibility we otherwise couldn't have. Because we don't require a kind of comprehensive certainty about things to be able to believe them. You know, it's fascinating. I teach the Trinity to 19, 20-year-olds, for many of whom, this is the first time they've really thought about the Trinity. And they read a chapter for the first time in their life on the doctrine of the Trinity. And the majority of them, when they butt up against the incomprehensibility of the Trinity, you know how they respond? They get mad and frustrated. What a funny way to respond to the wonder of God. And, and instead of being flooded with doubt now, or instead of being angry or frustrated, we should say, oh yeah, I'm talking about God. <laughs> right. I don't put him in a Petri dish. And figure him out like I do something in a Petri dish, which you actually can't fully figure out either, which is amazing. But that's why I have this broom. People have been wondering, I've been carrying this broom around. My students gave this to me because I talk about, when you think about God and do theology, you should have to carry around a brain broom. For when your head explodes and then you have to sweep your brain up off the ground and people are recoiling in horror, you say, oh, we're talking about God. Oh, I see. All right. 
And because this is a symbol of what we should actually seek, not avoid when it comes to understanding God. We should long for understanding that gets us to understand our lack of understanding. Now, before we leave you there, and then I'm almost done, I, I don't want us to just stay with incomprehensibility. I, I, I know maybe some of you are very goal-oriented people and you make lists of things to do. And, and sometimes, I bet some of you have done a task, gone to your list of things to do to cross it off, only to find out you had neglected to add it to the list of things. So at that point, you add it to the list. Even though it's done. Why? Oh, yes. <laughs> For the sheer pleasure. <laughs> oh. Right. And, and what I'm up here telling you is that our whole lives are about the task of knowing God. And you'll never do that. Well, that's trouble. That's trouble for some of us. Some of us are fine. Donna, my wife, has a much easier time with that than I do. We've been on mountain trips, climbing mountains, two days to the ascent. And on one trip, we were two hours before the, the peak. It, it was in the Tetons. Two hours. We could see the peak. It was a beautiful day. And there was a bolt of lightning. And Donna said, we need to turn around. Did you see that? And I said, see what? She said, the lightning. And I said, oh, it was just an aberration. And there was another one. She said, we need to go down. Because Donna knows the goal of mountain climbing is not to get to the top of the mountain. It's to get back to the parking lot. <laughs> and, and I don't know that. And she said, we need to turn around. I said, well, it's right there. And she said, hasn't this been wonderful? Hasn't it been beautiful? I said, yes. But that's not the goal. She said, hasn't this been good for our marriage? I said, yes, but that's not the goal either. That's the goal. And so it's really hard for me to be told, I'm not going to cross it off my list, but I take some comfort then in knowing that God is also knowable. See, because people like Oprah tuck incomprehensibility under her arm like a theological football and run to uncertainty extremes, where you can't even actually know God. He's called the ineffable, the noumena. You can't even put into words. You can't say anything right or wrong about him. And that's not true either. Look what 2 Peter says. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I guess knowledge is accessible. And I guess knowledge is sufficient to know God truly. Not comprehensively, but truly. Not exhaustively, but personally. And, and this is wonderful too. Not exhaustively, but sufficiently. We'll never be able to say to God, you held out on me. I didn't have sufficient knowledge of you to be everything you created me to be. We'll never be able to say that. And so we can rest in the knowledge of God that he gives us in his word. Jeremiah says, don't boast in power, wisdom, or riches. Boast in this that you understand and know me. That's what God says to us. And Jesus says eternal life is caught up in knowledge. And Hebrews says the new covenant will be a time when everyone will know the Lord. And Paul's whole goal in life 
is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. It's just beautiful. So the knowability of God means that we can have conviction. This is maybe odd because one of the implications of incomprehensibility was we can have conviction, believe things that we don't exhaustively understand. But the same is true of knowability. We can't punt to mystery on first down because it starts to be difficult for us to think about. We need to see it through and seek to know God as well as we possibly can. And two, we need to work hard to know, to be knowledgeable. Okay, really quickly, I just have eight, eight, I'm I'm serious, really quick, Laura, she she went, this is going to happen, eight things, just from a theologian to artist, encouragements, requests, pleas, exhortations, here they are, watch how fast this goes. Delight in the gifts God's given you and use them to enjoy God and glorify him. I don't think the the results of what we do can be the focus. It's got to be the delight we take in the God who gave us the gifts he gave us. Christians can be rushing to the meaning, to the pragmatics of things too often and don't just bask in the goodness of God's good gifts that he's given us. I love, you know, you, I'm sure m- many of you, if not all of you, have heard Eric Little say to his sister who was wondering why he was going to spend all this time running when people needed Jesus on the mission field. And, and he just said, oh, sister, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. God made me fast, and I, I run and I feel his pleasure. That's the, got to be the starting point. Two, please help people be filled with childlike wonder. Help us. Help us recapture, gain childlike wonder. And at the same time, help us to understand the truth better. Hold that tension of incomprehensibility and nobility well for us. And I'm not saying in one piece of art or one work, but I mean at the end of your life, in the body of your work, can we find wonder and certainty? remember the first time I really started thinking about this. It was right after I got to Biola, and the student artists were in this really dark phase. And I would go to their shows and their senior shows, and I'd leave just, whoa. I'd run, oh. And I preached in chapel during that time, and I just preached on the command to love God and love others. And I, I said, and I went major by major, and I got to the artists, and I said, artists, would you please love me with your art? I said, I know there's a place for showing us the dark side of the world and how we can often feel hopeless. But can you throw me a bone now and then of a little bit of glimmer of light? Can you give me a little something? And I'm not saying you can't camp on something you think God wants you to that just gives a glimmer, but can I have a glimmer somewhere? Kind of like Ecclesiastes does. Not much there. A little right at the end, I think. So... A little something. Uh, three, see, it's going fast. Three, love God and people with your art. Value the therapeutic healthfulness of artistic expression, but just don't use it to be cathartic or self-absorbed. I'm not assuming anything about anyone here. I'm thinking about other artists I've known who, who it, it seems to be all about them. 
And I, I, do, I do value the therapeutic nature. That's why I wanted to do it when I was a little kid, drawing. I couldn't do it, which is why I'm such a mess, I think, now. But we, we, we need to think, how, how can I bless people? And what I have in mind here is someone, someone in my family was dating many years ago. I'm going to leave it as vague as I can in case she hears this somehow. She was an amazing, she did ceramics, just beautiful ceramics. And she smashed almost all of them because they didn't reflect her ability sufficiently. And I would say, give them to me. Give them to me, right? And I just came away thinking, it's all about you, isn't it? It's all about you. Bless me. And I contrast that with one, one, a guy in our church, Walt Harrow, who writes music. And, and the first time I realized how generous he was with himself without taking himself so seriously, that he, he wrote a song during a sermon I was preaching and led it at the end of the service of the sermon I preached. He wrote it on a napkin. By the second service, he had it up on the screen, and it was just like, hey, let's try this out together. And I love that. He doesn't have his reputation on the line because he's going to throw this thing out. He wrote one song. I won't even tell you the, one of the lines in it, but he showed his wife the lyrics after it got published, and she said, oh, Walter. But that's okay. That didn't even bother him. He's okay with it. He's generous in that sort of way. So, so be generous. Uh, four, take advantage of your amazing opportunity to affect and influence people through art. I know it shouldn't be propaganda, but I think it should be influential. Do you know one of the most important things that happened in the abolitionist movement to rid Britain and the United States of slavery was art. The Wedgwood Society, people who did ceramics, the Wedgwood Medallion, they say, was one of the most influential things because it humanized slaves in images for people. Do you know Harry Beecher Stowe, who's a Connecticut woman, where Don and I are from, she lived literally a stone's throw from Mark Twain's house. What in the world? Connecticut's no joke. And, and so, and... Harry Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, and it shaped the way people thought about slavery. When Lincoln met her, he said, ah, the little woman who started the great big war. It's amazing the effect you can have in writing or in making images. Not as propaganda, not to manipulate, respecting people, but to influence. And it doesn't have to be overly simplistic or anything like that, but but you can help people appreciate the grandeur of God, the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the wisdom of God in so many different ways. Music gets deep in our souls. People have dementia, and sometimes the only things they can remember are, are hymns. That's profound, the influence you can have on people's lives. What a precious privilege to write a song that's the only thing left at the end of your life. What a privilege that is. I've experienced that so many times. It's all they got left. Can't even remember their wife's name. But they can remember this beautiful song that they sang in church with their grandmother. Images, writing, music can be so helpful. Five, devote your time and effort. You need to to be good. Not as an idol. 
I think sometimes artists can feel guilty for really committing time to their craft. It doesn't have practical outcomes, especially money, so often. Some people are privileged to be able to make money, but that, that can't be the goal. It's got to be, I want to do this to the glory of God the best I can, not with some sort of idolatrous view of excellence, but feel the freedom to devote yourself, to get good at something that God's gifted you with. Six, cultivate your intimacy with God and Christ-like character, not just your talent. Who you are will be the, the seedbed of what you create. Seven, don't be an elitist. There are good reasons people like Thomas Kincaid. I'll leave it at that. I'm at a university with a lot of elitism. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Uh, eight, know how much we non-artists and please don't say, oh, no, you could. No, I, I tried. <laughs> Just let me be an artist wannabe. Just know how much we appreciate you. And we value what you do. We need you in the game. We need you. We can't have you on the sidelines. We desperately need you. I, I know the church hasn't always been a hospitable place to artists. But there's this tension between that creation mandate we started with in the gospel great commission call that we have. And there is a tension, and there is a gospel call, but the call to be fruitful and multiply and rule over and subdue is, is interwoven with our gospel call as well. And so know how much we love and appreciate what you do. I do. I marvel at people who are gifted in ways I'm not. I'm, I couldn't be more grateful because of the ways they fill in the gaps. Uh, in our church, in, in my life, I'm just so deeply grateful. And so that's all I got. Comments, questions, thoughts? I'd love to hear feedback. What do you think? Comments, questions? Amen. Number eight was know how much we love and appreciate you. The best one. Yes. You didn't want to receive that affirmation, did you? It just bounced right off. Uh, uh, yes, I have a thought. I had a thought right off the bat, and I really, really wanted to share it with you. Um, one of the first things you talked about was um, how you as a theologian, you deal with, you know, thoughts and facts and words, and how art can bring so much more to um, knowing and understanding slash not understanding God. Yeah, um, and I, uh, I have been watching Bible Project videos lately, and one of the things I've learned is that a full 30% of the Bible is poetry. And I, that blew me away because, um, you know, I've, I've been learning about how, you know, poetry can, uh, through imagery and through, you know, emotions, teach you so much that uh, just words and narrative cannot. And yeah. so that's what I was thinking about, about art versus just, you know, words. Yeah. But poetry, parable, stories, narratives, character studies, it's, it's just amazing how many different kinds of angles God's taking to get things in our minds and hearts. Yeah, beautiful. Tell me your name. Mackenzie. Thanks, Mackenzie. Anybody else have a comment or thought, question, rebuttal? By the way, I loved how you just made a simple statement and said, I'm going to leave it there, <laughs> reflecting on the hymn, especially in light of what you highlighted, just silent in his life. I'm going to leave it there. 
And then here I am, just add more words to it like an idiot. Go ahead. Okay, hello. I so what what is the artwork for you? What is your artwork that you saw that expanded you or maybe you didn't have words for it, that moved you? That was not propaganda. <laughs> um, but that opened that expanded and added that mystery, but also like a sublime acknowledgement of the truth. Was there something that comes well, to mind? I, I would say my early days were pretty devoid of much art. I grew up in a gritty factory town where getting food on the table and just surviving was what it, and so I didn't have a lot growing up much at all. But I, I would say when I went to college, I took art history with <laughs> as pagan a prof as you're ever gonna get. She showed pictures of her, uh, drinking alcohol in all kinds of places all over the world when she went to art places. But Don and I had it together. Faith Henschel was her name. I remember her name. Students don't remember my name. A semester after they had me. I remember Faith Henschel's <laughs> name. Art history was one of the most fascinating classes I, I've ever taken. I loved it. That, I would say that was the first time I started going, <gasps> and then, And then I hitchhiked all over the country, and I would see art. And then I traveled all over Europe, and I would go in museums and I would say, I can't remember who painted that. And I can't remember what style or era it was. But I've seen that before <laughs> in my book. And that just that was significant for me. And, and it is. I just love it. And I also watch students take one art class and then become really uppity about art. It's amazing. Like, that is not a Van Gogh. What is your problem? As if they've known this forever, and they're so bored with you that you don't know what they know. And so, so to stay wide open to it and enjoy it and appreciate it. I'm, I'm actually right now in a faculty luncheon that meets twice a month where we just look at a self-portrait and sit around and talk about it from different disciplines. It's thrilling. I absolutely love it. We just looked at one where the, the self-portrait, the artist painted himself as Goliath. David's holding Goliath's head, and the artist, Caravaggio, I think, is, is Goliath, blood coming out, it, horrible. Yeah, yeah, terrible. But says a lot about his need for therapy, apparently. So, um, what else? Anything else? One or two more, yes. This should be quick. Can you repeat number two? Did you say something about not using it as uh, therapy or? No, 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 no. Uh, use it as therapy. That's why I wanted to do it in kindergarten. I needed therapy. Okay. Uh, so I, I, no, I don't. Um, let me read it again. I'm so thankful you asked me to clarify that. Um, love God and people with your art. Value the therapeutic helpfulness of artistic expression, but don't let it be just that. It, it shouldn't just be catharsis, right? It shouldn't just be sort of a self-absorbed, self-exploration. That's fine, but I think the command to love won't let us leave it there. Yes? I think I've got to care about other people is what I do. And again, not just in a singular piece of art. I may be totally wrong. Am I wrong about this? No. It's a good conversation, yes. I'm not saying, you, go ahead and do 10 paintings for therapy. But can I have one where you love me with it? 
Just one attempt, attempt with like a tithe. Tithe one of your paintings to help me. Eric, I'll jump in on this. Yes, one. Jeff. Just, thank you, um, brother. Because I, I dabble in writing, but a lot of times I hold back my thoughts. And sometimes I think, well, that's going to be too much of a platitude. It's going to be too, you know, almost just like the, the sweet little answer to correct something. But it's a thought that I have, and I hold it back. And it's that ability to stop and say, you as artists have a gift that can actually help somebody through a dark time, through a, a cloudy time. And the thing to do isn't to leave them in the cloud. It's to stop and say, here's the truth of that. Love here's it, the light in love that. Love it, love it, love it. So that's what I'm talking about. Yes. And we, sometimes we so fear a simplistic Sunday school answer that we don't give clarity. We, we don't give anything that's helpful. Just have, I just had a thought to add to what you're saying about the knowability and incomprehensibility of God. And um, I used to teach a science in the Bible class, and one of the great gifts that true science, which is just simply looking at God's creation and, and just looking at how it works, actually both increased and decreased my knowledge of God at the same time. Mm -hmm. It increased my knowledge of him because I'm like, oh my gosh, you made this this way. You made it to function this way. And it also increased his incomprehensibility because it's like, oh, my gosh, you made it this That's way. Right. And right. I can't understand that. Like, it, and, and as an artist, it actually hooks me into the story more to understand more of his create to understand how much I don't understand mm -hmm. about his creation mm -hmm. has given me more fire. And uh, anybody really given us more fire to tell that story over and yeah. over again because we see it repeated. We see it repeated on the micro scale. We see it repeated on the macro scale the heavens and that that's true exactly how you put it is is just you just lit a fire in my brain Beautiful. so it's it's really lovely good Thank and you. it's it's not only that happens with god it happens with the cell for instance right, yeah and i i was just telling my i won't get into it because it's kind of a long story i was getting into my uh, i was telling my friend about that book called flatland yeah. by father abbott mm -hmm. And uh, how it talks about the different dimensions, you yeah, know, yeah. and that we are three-dimensional creatures, and it takes about ten dimensions to explain the origin of the atom. And if our God is ten dimensions or more because he, he created us, yeah. then who am I, a three-dimensional yeah. creature, to ever say <laughs> I know anything about him, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's humbling, so yeah. thank you. You three-dimensional <laughs> creature. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love that. Yes, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, when, when my mother got old and she couldn't do very much, I decided to hire an artist to come in and give her art lessons. Oh. And it was the best, the best thing mm. I could have done for her. But since the artist was there, I said, well, why don't you teach me <laughs> to yeah, yeah. And so every week she would bring in a model. Well, one week she brought in a red onion, and I had never, ever, ever noticed how absolutely beautiful yeah. a red onion yeah. is until I tried to draw it. And my husband came home, and I said, honey, guess what? I fell in love with a red onion today. <laughs> it's Christina. Chris, have you ever heard of the book, uh, The Supper of the Lamb? Oh, there's a whole chapter on the onion. It's written by a theologian chef. There's a whole chapter on flour. And let me just say, I think one of the most important things you can do for us artists is help us to slow down. And help us to 
That's right. And help us to see. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Beautiful. Yep. Yep. The supper of the lamb. Yeah. Hey, one quick question. What would you say to the artists who struggle to put the brush down? Um, there, even as, as a songwriter or as a painter, there's this this struggle with perfection. S sometimes that relates to pride, uh, wanting to have it perfect. But what would you say to those who struggle to put the brush down and let it be finished? Yeah, so when I was writing my PhD dissertation, that was the most important thing, Justin, that I learned to really just be able to say, that'll have to be good enough. And be okay with that. And I think it's related sometimes to pride, sometimes to just a perfectionism, which is absurd for a finite creature to even have that sort of aspiration. So, so to want to do things well, but not in a way that, <laughs> that has an idea of yourself that isn't, isn't realistic, isn't accurate, and, and an idea of life that isn't realistic. People need you to come home, right? Just, just watch Michael Jordan's documentary or his acceptance speech at the, the uh, Hall of Fame, and it's embarrassing how he still doesn't feel like he's proved enough. And, and then watch David Robinson's acceptance speech where he's thanking the towel guy and he's just over, overflowing with gratitude. He's still not trying to prove himself all the time. And it's, it's exhausting when you get on that treadmill. You, what do you add to that? I know you have that problem. What would well, you say? Well, I just, yeah, as a, as a songwriter, it, would, it just took me probably 10, maybe 15 years to finally feel settled and affirmed by God that the unfinished work that I'm still, you know, trying to put together in my mind is okay to, to let it be. Yeah. And then sharing something like you shared with about Walt's story about that song, even though it's unfinished, God still uses it in such yeah. an incredible yeah. way for, for his glory, which is so cool. When it comes to writing, I, the most helpful book I have ever read on writing is called Thinking on Paper. And what the basic message of the book is you shouldn't be writing for a finished product. Writing is part of the thinking process that you'll pick up next time you write something. It, it's, it's never done, really. Yeah, good. One more. Anybody who hasn't asked a question or said something? Right there, Jeff. Uh, my wife and I have talked about when we're creating, we are joining God in creation. Uh, he's made us in his image. I think we're created to create. I think when we draw back from creating, we're not being our complete selves. Mm. Um, there's just a, and we're, we're wanting to help people stop saying they're not creative. Yeah. You know, a lot of people shy yeah. away from art probably because when we were kids in school, someone laughed at our drawing. Yeah. Right. Or I even mean, a teacher. Couldn't even tell what it was. It yeah. probably should have been laughed at though. That, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's okay. Or, I'm over it. Yeah. I'm over it. Whatever yeah. realm of creation, you know, whatever, w whether it's food, you know, putting food 
certain certain herbs together yeah. to make something taste great, or we're doing music, or we're we're doing woodworking, uh, writing a story, music, whatever. Um, we're w wanting to be open to creating in more areas than one. Yeah, and I think that's good. So I. One thing I was good at is I was an athlete, and that is incredibly creative. I was playing pickleball with my wife last night against Don was playing with someone else, and I was playing with this guy, and I hit a really good angled shot for the first time ever. And and he he looked at me and said, "Do you play chess?" And that was about the best compliment he could have given me. <laughs> Understanding athletics because athletics is chess. It's anticipation. It's responding. It's Trying to anticipate five moves down the down the, the way, and so, so, I, I I don't think I've said I'm not creative. I've I've said I'm not artistically or, <laughs> I'm not artistically creative, and I think that's a legitimate claim. Um, but I but I would never say any human being lacks any creativity. Every, everybody's creative, in some way. All right, we good. Jeff, pray for us. You guys know Jeff Lilly. I hope you get to know Jeff Lilly this weekend. He's a good man. So many good people here. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we just thank you as the, the ultimate creator that you have created us in your image and that ability in each of us to reflect that, to do something out of us uh, that points to you. And Lord, that this weekend would be one where each of us would be challenged, uh, not just by the words of Eric or the other teachers, but Lord, by you stirring in our hearts of things that you've been calling us out on, uh, trying to draw us out because inside of us, you have buried your truth, you have hidden your beauty, and you want to reveal another facet of who you are. Lord, may this weekend be a time where our wonder expands. May we uh, get to know just a, a bit more of you and find out how much we don't know. We thank you, Lord, and we ask these things in your name.